Amen. You guys may be seated. If you have your Bibles, go with me to John chapter 17. As the band comes down, we'll read this passage together in preparation for the sermon. John chapter 17, we'll read the whole chapter. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and I loved them even as you loved me. Father, 
I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have a high priest. His name is Jesus. And that, Father, you have sent him to make yourself known to us. And so, Father, I pray that we would know you more clearly in these upcoming moments as you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And, Father, just pray your blessing on this time. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Anyways, good morning. What a week it has been. Um, just some overwhelming grace of saying in... Uh, being able to go to the Gospel Coalition Conference uh, in Florida, to be in Florida where humidity uh, is still apparently a, a, a thing, and uh, and get my skin to you know like stop cracking. Uh, so that was that was nice um, until uh, Wednesday when I came down with conference plague, um, which was exciting um, and has uh, kind of haunted me still this week. Uh, I've been drinking water like crazy and I'm still crampy and weak and food's not what it used to be, um, but we're, we're good. Um, it's just, it was still such a, a great week, a great opportunity to uh, get to just get away. Um, I, we don't travel very often, um, and to be able to get away with, with guys that love the Lord, um, to be able to sit in a conference hall with six or eight or however many thousand uh, men and women, mostly men, um, and here, there are voices just kind of wash over the crowd as we worship together, trying to imagine what glory will be like when men and women uh, in great numbers, so much more than that, from all the ages, just worshiping and washing over um, us as we sing to the King is just a crazy thought. Uh, as you get time away, as we got, you know, the grace through preaching that the brothers brought, um, just so encouraging, so gracious. And then when I got sick, the care. But the guys that we were with uh, just kind of took care of me, the preference and honor and prayer that they gave me. It made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> all this grace in my life, all this grace in this weekend, it still makes you very uncomfortable. I don't understand exactly how that works. Um, and most of the things that we look at in our life, if we're honest with ourselves, um, we want to be shown care. We want to be shown preference. We want to be shown honor. We want to get the best of things. We want to hear the best preachers in this particular case. We want to, to get all that. And when it is actually given to us, much like Peter, when his feet are getting ready to be washed, he says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And we turn away that because it makes us feel really uncomfortable when that grace is actually given to us. It's such a crazy, crazy thought because then on the other hand, we think about not grace, but transgression, and the transgressions in our lives of how they just can be very quickly overwhelming. I mean, it's much like laundry. You don't have to try to let laundry become an overwhelming task. All right, ladies? Can I get an amen? No? Okay, we're still early. We'll get there. It's only 11. Um, dishes. 
yet, huh? You don't have to work hard for dishes to become overwhelming. Men, are we, are we starting to feel that weight? It's not hard for things that to just kind of spiral out of control, and all of a sudden you're standing back having, I just washed every piece of fabric in this house two days ago, and it's all back at the door. What is up with that? And very quickly, without work, it becomes very overwhelming, and then you look at it again, and it's like, well, this is real uncomfortable and really annoying, but I can handle it. I'll just sort it. I'll just stick it in the dishwasher. I can handle it. How come is it with grace it makes us uncomfortable and we refuse it, but when it comes to transgressions, when it comes to things that that we do against God, it's something that we can handle. We think about our sin and the overwhelming weight that sin should have, and for some reason at the end of the day, we still revert back to self-righteousness. I'm good enough. I I can fix it. I can make it okay. And what I think is going to be interesting today is as we look at this story of God's faithful love, you're going to see the Israelite nation, this return from exile, 50,000 Jews in a city have to deal with overwhelming transgression and overwhelming grace. We see, so far in Nehemiah, we've seen how God rebuilds a broken city. They built the walls back up. The temple, uh, shoddy as it may be, is, is at least together. The city has been rebuilt, and starting a couple weeks ago, we began to see how God rebuilds a broken people. It started by figuring out who's in the community, right? We looked at the genealogy chapter. All of those names are important. Why? Because those are the people who are allowed to be there. Those are the people who are in the covenant. At the end of the chapter, we see that there are people who are not found in the book of the genealogies, and they are not welcome into the covenant, which what does that mean? at this time in redemptive history. They're not under the grace of God. And so we see this people having been reclaimed, brought back into the city, and we see them become a people of God again as they renew covenant together. And we see that continuing last week as how in the world do you disciple 50,000 people? Nehemiah is often used as a leadership book, and we get to this point, and we say, all right, leader, you're in charge of 50,000 people. How are you going to disciple them? We found out last week that small groups just won't do for that. It can't just simply be prayer. It can't just simply be, you know, personal Bible study. We need preaching. Nehemiah has a preaching ministry. Ezra gets up, and he delivers the word for six hours. Well, the amount of people that fill Great American Ballpark, the capacity, plus another 8,000 on the field, stand there and listen. They listen to the preached word of God. As Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites, the leaders are discipling God's people to worship God and to obey God. And what you see very quickly as we move through the chapter last week is it provokes them to weeping. It provokes them to weeping. The effects of revival on the community from the preaching of the word and the changes that come about are a result of preaching. And they weep in response. The people see their sin, they're repentant and broken about it. But what's beautiful is last week, and we're going to see again this week, the Levites just kind of come alongside the people, and they comfort them. Last week we saw them say, look, now's not the time for weeping. Now's not the time for for even confession. Now's the time for celebration. 
The Day of Atonement is coming. This is the seventh month. This is the month of festivals. We're going to praise God for who he is. Yes, we are failures. Yes, we are sinful, and we will deal with that. But we will not compound sin on top of sin by disobeying his word about how we're supposed to spend these days. And they celebrate God for who he is. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, comes and goes. And we find ourselves now on the 24th day of the month. The people have not forgotten their son. And so the Levites come again alongside the people with a very sweet spirit. It's, it's a very humble contrition about their sin. They understand that God has been good to them. He's been faithful to them. And they've not been a faithful people to God. So what do we do with that? Kind of the big idea I want us to kind of set the, the tone for today. It's not in your notes. I just kind of want to throw it out there so we have kind of a roadmap. It says, times occur in the life of the faith community when public sorrow and confession of sin are appropriate. And as we saw last week, there was an appropriate time and a not appropriate time. Uh, during the festival, during the celebrations, not an appropriate time. It seems weird in our culture because we always just say, well, just confess it now. And they have a better understanding, I think, of what confession looks like. It's not just a, sorry, God, my bad. It's a confession and it's a repentance. And so there are times when it's appropriate. The time to confess to God is not when you accidentally say something wrong in a conversation with somebody. Like, one second, I need to confess. Forgive me, Lord, for I had sinned. All right, we're not going to confession every time in the moment. But we are aware enough of our life and what we are doing and who we are as a person that we understand that we are sinners. Not just that we have sinned, but that we are sinners. And we find a time when it is appropriate. But sometimes there is a time when the community comes together in public confession and sorrow. These occasions bind together believers and reinforce a humble state before God. And that result also in praise for God's great mercy and grace. So that's where we're going today. Uh, I'm going to be a little more scripted today than I usually am due to the nature of this week. Uh, so I apologize for that. And we also have a lot of text to cover. Um, so we're going to we're going to move. The first point for today: Reformers understand history and own their condition. Reformers understand history and own their condition. I have a great appreciation from history. I think I got it from both of my parents. Um, in one case, history of real things, and in another case, history of you know not real things. Um, I like history. I, what I really like is stories. What you find in history are stories of people, stories of, uh, of people in real life, of things that actually happened and how people made decisions and the character that was part of that decision-making process and the character changes that resulted because of the choices. But what's interesting is in history of fantasy, of Tolkien, of C.S. Lewis, of whatever it may be, there's still human condition issues that play out in history, right? It may not be a human character, but the human character flaws still come through. And in stories, they allow us to see, really, our story. In history, we get to see stories of people play out, and we need to understand that history is not a 
random thing. It is revelatory of who people are. You can see that in the incline and decline of nations, as they are a group of people, and they move together based out of the character, out of the principles, out of the things that are important to them. You see that happen even in our country in the past five years. You don't have to go back all the way to the Founding Fathers. You can, but you can see that history plays itself out. How? Not just randomly, but based off of people. We need to understand that we are a people. We need to understand our history. We need to understand our condition. And I think the first thing that we're going to see in Nehemiah as we begin this is they understand their condition, and they certainly grasp their history. So let's, let's get into our text, um, and then we'll, we'll set us up, up for today. In chapter 9 of Nehemiah, verse 1, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, this is the same month, the seventh month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah. There's no way to say this next name without getting made fun of on the playground. Bunny, <laughs> Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. You may recognize some of those names from the last chapter. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites... Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, and we will pause. <laughs> Notice that the Levites have not just kind of gone home, right? They've started this celebration, and the people have come to them and said, we need to confess our sin. And they said, well, now is not the time. 24 days later, I'm 23, I suppose, they show back up and they say, all right, look, the festivals are over. The festival of booths is concluded. We got business to take care of, brother. Help us. And so the Levites, again, assemble them. And they stand together. And for six hours, six hours they read again. And then again, for six hours, they confess. I certainly don't think that this is prescriptive and that we need to read all the time for six hours or that we need to confess for six hours. But I certainly think that it's indicative and it's obviously descriptive of what's going on in their hearts. This is serious confession. You can't confess something that you don't really feel, and particularly for six hours. And so as we begin to look at this prayer that really overtakes the remainder of this chapter, I just want to throw out a short little pastoral quip here on what prayer is, right? We got to hear Jesus' priestly prayer earlier in John 17. I hope some of that echoes in the back of your head as we read through this. But I want us to understand that the model that, that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer, the model that we even saw there in John 17, the model that we're going to see today has the same components. And I hope that if you're struggling in your prayer life, you take some of what I'm getting ready to show you and try to just apply it and see if that really unlocks, if you will, to use a name it and claim it type version, your prayer life. <laughs> I want to set you free in your prayer life, right? 
Just use an acrostic of pray, praise. We turn our eyes and our thoughts away from ourselves to God and honor him for who he is and what he's done. That's the first thing you're going to see when they start their prayer. Honor and praise God for who he is. P, praise. R, repentance. This becomes a natural response when we see the greatness of God and his holiness. And Jesus' example for us, he says, forgive us, right? Forgive us our trespasses. In the priestly prayer, he's talking about the sin of his people. Obviously, he can't talk about his sin. He doesn't have any. He's talking about the sin of his people. And sin is a reality that has to be dealt with immediately. Particularly before we have the audacity to ask God for anything. But just like they modeled in their celebration, the first half of the month, they celebrated. They praised. They honored God. Day 24 comes, they repent. A, ask. Asking acknowledges our dependence on God. We cannot live life on our own. We see throughout Scripture that we are encouraged to ask because God the Father delights in giving. We have not because we ask not, right? Ask God. He loves to give good things to his kids, and we're going to see that today when they make their ask. We saw that in Jesus' prayer when he asks for unity, for love for his people, for the sheep that are his And finally, why yield? In the end, we yield everything to God, who is all-wise and who loves us with an enduring love. He desires our best and understands our weakness. And when we yield to God, we can truly rest. At the end of your prayer, you should be resting. If you're not, you need to keep praying. Because you've not really yielded everything to God. When we truly cast all our burdens on God, We don't have to carry any weight of it anymore. Yielding allows rest. Trusting that God is as sovereign as you're claiming him to be. Pray. So, as we begin to see this prayer, I want to set us up with this last piece. I want you to understand the nature of this text. This is the best Old Testament record of the Old Testament in the entire Bible. Well, obviously in the entire Old Testament. This is the best record, okay? This is the pattern of history. We see, we've talked about this in the pattern of the kingdom, right? As we talk about gospel and kingdom. This is the pattern of history. We see in this chapter that we're going to read today, creation covered. Abraham covered. Exodus covered. The wilderness, conquest, judges, prophets, exile. We're going to see all of that. And some of you might be saying, well, I've already heard this story. Good. Um, I'll start with that. Secondly, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Why? Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 10 real quick. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us. He's referring back in 1 through 5 to everything that the Israelites went through. Creation, Abraham, Exodus, wilderness, conquest, judges, prophets, exile. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire what? evil as they did we need to own our condition verse 7 says do not be idolaters as some of them were then skip down in that same chapter to verse 11 now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall church you've heard the story before most of you Take heed lest you fall, because you will repeat the same thing they did. 
Remind us of what we learned last week, that these are not idle words. They are your life. And I can mean that literally and spiritually. Spiritually, these are life-giving words from Scripture. And literally, he's getting ready to describe who we are. Accept them as grace and with grace. Why as grace? Well, this is an excellent example of Scripture interpreting Scripture. We have the opportunity now to see how an inspired writer of Scripture interprets inspired Scripture. That's pretty cool. Usually you get like a verse from Paul, right? How does he interpret the Old Testament? We have not just Nehemiah who recorded it, but the Levites who are actually praying this, interpreting Scripture for us. If you want to know how to understand Christian of the New Testament, creation, Abraham, Exodus, wilderness, conquest, judges, prophets, exile, in a biblical sense, this is what we get. This is an excellent opportunity for us to understand the nature of this text and where we're getting ready to go. That being said, let us begin the Levitical prayer. There's too much text for me to expound, and my teacher, as you heard last year, my teacher tendencies is going to be to give you every detail about these. We could preach like an entire series on every paragraph, and I got really excited for this, and then I realized that I just preached on preaching last week, and so I should probably get about the task. (laughs) There's going to be some commentary in here, um, but we're just going to move down verse by verse, and I hope that you can see the story of God's faithful love unfold as we understand our history, because our history is the same as these Israelites, and please, Please, please pray for humility and own your, own my condition as sinners. Let's begin. The Levites said, verse 5, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. P means pray and praise, right? Which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The Levites say, blessed be your glorious name. A blessing is something that sets apart someone as deserving special attention. When we talk about the P, the praise, God deserves special attention. Why? Because he's God. The people acknowledge God's magnificent name, just who he is. The fact that he's I am, that he is Yahweh. They agree that God's character sets him apart from everything within the created order. Mortal man cannot do him justice even in his best attempts to worship God and exalt him. We will never come to the end of who God is. He is something completely different than who we are, even though we are made in his image. So we move into verse 6. Verse 6 is going to give us Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's the beginning of God's faithful love, God's self-giving in creation. He's sharing himself with us, right? We, the crown of creation... God is sharing his love with us. And God willed your existence. God willed your specific existence. In Psalm 139, we see that he knit you together specifically in the womb. We all know the physics involved in making a baby. There's huge odds at play when it comes to making you. It doesn't happen by chance. God willed you into existence knowing before that we would reject him. The fact that God knew us beforehand has huge implications for abortion. We can't just skip these things, guys. When we read things like verses 5 and 6, we need to understand that this is full of Bible, full of doctrine, full of 
theology, full of who God is as he's revealed himself. Because in verse 6 it says, You are the Lord, you alone. You made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. The Levites say you give life to everything. Nothing exists outside the express desire of God, and nothing can continue without his provision. So verse 6 is Genesis 1 and 2. Move into verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. He found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pezzarite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You see, God exhibits his magnificence not only in the wonder of his creation, but in the power of his rule and in his condescension to form a relationship with humankind. You understand when we read the words of God, it is infinite, holy, completely unknowable above us, God, that has made himself understandable to humans, to children. How crazy is that? The God who spoke stars into existence, how in the world could we ever know that person? Outside of him revealing himself to us. And he didn't just reveal himself, he chose us. He chose Abram. You see, in verse 7, we begin to see that Genesis chapter 3, all the way through 50. In two verses, we cover 50 chapters. We introduce to Abraham, God chose Abraham. You are the Lord God who chose him. He initiated this relationship. Abraham is one of the most important characters of the Bible. I'm sure we're mostly familiar with him. But why? Because the Abrahamic covenant is really what drives the plot line of the Bible all the way on to the end. And when I said earlier that we get to see Scripture interpret Scripture, look at this verse. Verse 8. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. How cool is it to have the Levites Understand that God is faithful and has already kept his promise to Abraham. But it's not completely done, right? It's already here, but it's not yet consummated. Certainly Jesus is still part of this equation. And we get to move on forward to the consummation. I think what's most interesting about 7 and 8 is not just the keeping of the promise, but as we see the Levites outlining this in the prayer, they're tracing their roots back to the divine will of God and his inexplicable grace. Why did God choose Abraham and the Israelites? Why didn't he choose Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Because of his good will, his good pleasure. The Jews understand that it's his inexplicable grace. I don't have an answer for why. He just wanted to. And it's his good pleasure. They're his people and he loves them. Move on into verse 9. And we see that the Levites are recounting the fact that the Israelites had to leave Ur 
had to leave the land that God would show them and had to move them to Egypt for food. This is the story of Joseph, right? They settled there, but they grew crazy fast. And the Egyptians started to get really kind of nervous, so they subjected them to slavery to try to oppress them. And God calls out Moses and delivers his people. They understand here that the promise is the foundation, but the central event of the Old Testament, the central redemptive event of the Old Testament is the Exodus. And so let's read verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. The Levites are declaring that our fathers were in Egypt suffering. But God is not aloof from his creation. He observes and he watches. And praise God we have a God who's here. I like Thomas Jefferson believed that God created everything and then just left it to its own. We are deists. We believe that God is here. Next verse. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You made a name for yourself. The pivotal statement that the Levites make around which everything else in this prayer depends is God making a name for himself. That should sound familiar to January when we talk about for his namesake, for the love of his name. Why does God do what he does? He's jealous for his name. What is missions about? The name. Set against everything else that the Levites are recounting in this historical recollection, they understand that God is about making a name for himself. And it remains to this day. The reputation and character of God is revealed and established in space and in time as he acts in history. He acts in history. And so in bringing his people back and in creating again this city, in bringing his people back and creating again this temple, in bringing his people back and restoring this community, his nature is indisputably demonstrated we saw when the wall was completed that what happened amongst the other nations their esteem of themselves fell for they witnessed what God had done he has demonstrated himself indisputably and it's remained constant even until this present time in verse 11 you divided the sea before them so they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. Verses 13 and 14. Again, God's condescension provides the setting, not only did he reveal himself to Abraham, not only did he choose Abraham out from among the people, but now God's people have left Egypt and they have arrived at the holy mountain, Mount Sinai, and God's presence descends upon the mountain in such a way that if you touch the mountain, you die. God's presence is there. His condescension provides the setting. He came down on Mount Sinai. God always approaches mankind. 
God always approaches mankind. He is always the initiator. It is a lie that we are the ones who initiate the, the, the relationship by stepping into the Nile. And just take the first step, and he'll carry you the rest of the way. He takes every step. He took every step to the cross, and he takes every step now. God always initiates the relationship. We have nothing of ourselves that deserves salvation. We have nothing of ourselves that allows us to enter into grace with him. Own your condition. Left to ourselves, we would remain in Egypt. In fact, that's what they wanted to do. They were appointing for themselves leaders to take them back. You spoke to them from heaven. Heaven and earth met not by human will, but by divine decision. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Understand that we just, (laughs) in three, four verses, covered God rescuing them from the cruel slavery of Pharaoh. He split the Red Sea. Before we skip this one again, he split a sea. And they walked across on dry land. He led them through the desert. He protected them from the sun with the cloud by day. He lit the way and warmed them as a pillar of fire by night. They would die from exposure. He provided sustenance. He gave them food. He gave them water from rocks. They would die for hunger. These people are absolutely dependent on God in the desert. Why didn't God take them by some other way? Because he's their provider. But God didn't just provide for them in that way. He gave them rule of law. He revealed himself to them. You understand what a blessing it is to have rules in an ancient society? Or do you think we make such a big deal about like the Magna Carta? About all the other big, important movements of government in ancient history? We need society to function by laws. It's a big deal, particularly when you have very nomadic people now making their way across the desert. But God also gave them rest. He gave them Sabbath. It forces them to trust his provision. They already, already have to trust God to drop food from the sky, to provide water, that if they try to gather extra, it will rot. And now he institutes Sabbath. Why? Because he's a good God. Otherwise, they would still be in Egypt, and they would still want to work themselves to death. God says, rest. Rest. Trust me. Verse 16. You begin to see kind of the theme here that he was faithful, but they were faithless. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. You see, the prayer is returning to its former themes and subject. We see this pattern, this cycle. This time, God's amazing character and grace are already displayed by the Israelites. Uh, I'm sorry. God's amazing character and grace are contrasted against the Israelites' attitudes and actions. Though God had repeatedly demonstrated generosity, that he had repeatedly been faithful, and we see compassion 
the forefathers, their fathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. This willful stubbornness is the defining characteristic of Israelites, right? Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. God's patience, God's compassion could not be thwarted. Not even by the most wicked behavior of his chosen people. You got the other nations around and like, I could do better than that. That's what I'd be thinking. Because here they are, where heaven has met earth, the presence of God is manifest, and they're having orgies at the base of the mountain, and they are worshiping a golden calf. As the people ascribed to a metal calf the role of Savior, God still did not abandon them. What does that mean for our marriages? What does that mean for our parenting? Israel's faithlessness could not destroy or diminish his committed devotion and his determined love. Idolatry is particularly egregious to God. But he's a God ready to forgive, and he did not forsake. It's not even that God is willing to forgive. He's ready. God is ready to forgive. How incredible is that? You could offend him in the most fundamental way of his nature and character as God by worshiping something else. And he's ready to forgive. Verse 19, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way that did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not even wear out and their feet did not swell. The Levites don't stay there. They keep going on very quickly. In verse 22, you start to see now the book of Joshua. We just finished the Torah. I don't know if you realize that. We're flying through the Bible. Joshua, he's delivering now on his promise We see that the people are going to delight themselves in God's great goodness. Let's read verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. And so they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. What does that sound like? And you brought them into a land that you had told their fathers to enter 
and possessed. So the descendants went in, and they possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. Listen to this. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land. They took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards already planted, olive orchards already planted, fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. The danger here is they forget what Moses had said. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you hear what the Levites are quoting. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10 through 12 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, a land with large, flourishing cities you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you didn't provide, wells that you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves that you didn't have to plant. And when you eat and are satisfied, well, I want that. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Do they forget? Well, verse 26 to 31 shows us 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and all the prophets. You ready for the next 400 years? Here we go. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Let me read that without a break in the middle. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Verse 27, Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. But they sinned against your rules, which, if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they returned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and just would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. So the prophets are there to warn the people to come back to the covenant. The prophets are given to the people to warn them to come back to the covenant. A lot of people don't like to read the prophets because they're negative books, right? It should be. They're written at a time when the people were negative. All right? When they're disobedient, their job is to return people to the covenant. But most people, I'd wager all people, 
don't like hearing bad news. They don't like having sin pointed out to them. And so instead, they persecute and kill the prophets. It happened now, and it happened then. There's nothing new. This is a timeless principle. It's our condition. Now, you think about it even now. Who's the most popular preachers in the country? You guys may think that Piper is incredibly popular. You may think that Platt is incredibly popular. They are, in our circle. We're not the majority, okay? You think about people like, I'm not going to name them, you know them. These other people, what do they preach? Well, the same thing that people want to hear, health and wealth. There's a reason we have a term called prosperity gospel, the American way. Health, wealth, happiness. Most of the parenting books that you see when you go are about what? Making your kid happy. People comment on our pictures of our children on Facebook. They look happy. I'm glad I have achieved my goal. Woe unto me when they are no longer happy. The truth is, we have to be warned. We need people to show us. That's why we have preachers. That's why we have truth preachers. That's why we have prophets. That's why we have the book of Hebrews, who gives us warnings against apostasy. The fact that we can fall away and prove that we were never really part of the flock at all. We need warning. We read this passage last week, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3-4. through 4. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. That's why we have to have secret church this year. That's why we have to have six hours on apologetics as we deal with what does it look like to counter culture that just wants to do what they want to do. How do we become truth preachers in our culture? But before we really get to trying to take it on the offensive, I think we need to look inward first because the question that I had to ask myself is what prophets have I been killing? They cast his law behind their back and they killed his prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. I think for the most part, I receive rebuke. I receive correction well. I should, as an elder, it's supposed to be something I'm able to embody and show. And so I don't often come against people who are trying to help me. So I've prayed as I'm preparing. What prophets have I been killing? We started with prayer. We're talking about prayer. Prayer is powerful. God answered, like, in two minutes. Right? Email, ding. Get a nice come to Jesus uh, uh, email from my father, uh, through my heavenly father, uh, about our family and our hearts and our health. Something that I can easily kind of push off, that I can rationalize, that I can you know, make work, that I can justify that I'm killing a prophet through my life. We kill prophets, guys. God answers in prayer. God answers all sorts of prayer. God answers prayer on Wednesday when I was in pain. I've not been in pain like that as an adult. I've been sick and I've been under the weather. I was in pain. 
and I didn't. I was trying to act all macho in front of these guys because I'm the big guy, and uh, I didn't know how I was going to make it home. I didn't. And these guys prayed for me before we left. They prayed as we were going, and uh, it, it didn't fix everything, but I'm not in Florida. <laughs> I was ready to lay on the side of the road. I, I was, it was not good. Prayer works, guys. Because the, when you pray, you yield, and you say, God, I trust you to do what I'm asking. Pray. God provided in the course of three days the money that we needed to help cover my costs, the little bit of cost that I had, because most of my trip was covered. God provided. Pray. Ask God what profits you've been killing. He'll bring them. Make sure you keep your hands down or you'll kill them again. Ask God. Verse 30, it says, many years. <laughs> 400 years. Many years equals 400. 400 years you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets and they would not give ear. The final straw is called exile. Yet. Verse 31. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God took them out of the land and he put them underneath oppressors again. He basically sent them back to Egypt. But he didn't forsake them. He didn't make an end of them. He was still with them. Reformers recognize God's grace and mercy. Reformers recognize God's grace and mercy. We get to verse 32, and we're in Nehemiah's day. He grew up in Persia. You see the pronouns shift in verse 32. These reformers that are here in Jerusalem again recognize God's grace and his mercy. And you see them begin to pray for themselves. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, not, let not all the hardship seem little to you, that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. The prayer is personal now. The Israelites had come to realize and confess anything from their view of history. It was the fact that God is the great and mighty, awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. You see, in view of Israel's persistence in sin and rebellion, they could only appeal to God's compassion. The nation had broken the covenant over and over and over again, and so they had one hope. God's love is their only hope. What's your only hope? At the end of the day, what do you rest in? I'll show you what the Israelites rest in. Verse 33 should blow your socks off. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Look at the conviction. Look at the repentance that they have. In all of this, in all of this, let it not be light to you, God. But we understand that it's our fault. We brought this on ourselves. You have been faithful. You have acted righteously. We have been wicked. They embraced their heritage as they stood humbly before God. 
Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. We may think that we would obey God better or that we'd even be more inclined to follow him or, or even recognize him as a God for those of you that are not believers if our circumstances were better, right? There's always a reason. If, if we weren't suffering, or if there was less suffering in the world, if God w- would, would do away with evil, I couldn't worship a God that, that has kids get cancer. If, if we had enough money, or if we were married, or if we worked in a job that we love, or, or, or. There's always, there's always an excuse. But these guys were in paradise on earth, and they still didn't obey God. They were in the promised land. The God of the universe gives people a promise and delivers on it. And they still couldn't recognize him as God. They still wouldn't live faithfully. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Eden to me. The truth is that we are enemies of God and we set ourselves up as kings and queens and worship ourselves. We will never have all that we want and there will always be an objection because we are evil people. Apart from the grace of God, we can do nothing good. Our only hope is God in any circumstance. And so their appeal continues in verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. We're back in the land that we are supposed to be in, and we're slaves. Its rich yield goes to kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. Look at the ownership there again. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. They've returned, yes, from exile and resettled and rebuilt, and all these blessings are wonderful, but they're bittersweet because they don't get to partake of them. They're still ruled over. And so... They end the prayer with a confession. We are in great distress. Now that I'm almost out of time, I get to actually preach. <laughs> I feel like they're slaves in their own land. They're saying we need a new deliverance. Really, we, we need a new exodus. We need that central restorative, that redemptive narrative to happen again to us. God, bring us blessing and forgiveness. And we see this in the spirit of revival that started last week. They are owning their sin. They see themselves in this history. They're not guiltless. The pronouns indicate that they're causal agents. They're not victims. They're perpetrators. God is disciplining them because he loves them. Because he's good. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5, speaking on discipline. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Because if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. But victims are not humbled by their own sin and failure. Victims aren't humbled by their own stuff. Instead, they become bitter and angry. 
And we can't play the victim with God. The Israelites don't play the victim. They understand that this is discipline that they deserve because they're sons. And sons and daughters, on the other hand, are grateful for God's faithful love, even when it hurts. Not a bit of blame is directed towards God at all in this passage. It's exactly the opposite. They own it all, and they say, we repent. They realize that we've done this always. This is the pattern of who we are, and what we find in this passage now is brokenness. I mean, this is humility. This is revival. There are no victims in revival. In revival, you have sons and daughters who rejoice in the king. Why? Because of verse 33, you've been righteous in all that you've done. For you have dealt faithfully, and we've acted wickedly. So you're asking, how does this play out in my life? (laughs) Again, what prophets are you killing? If we're going to, though, on the different hand, look at the pattern of what we've been seeing with the Israelites. Is the, I mean, think about what all the different things the Levites could have taught in this moment. And they go back to history and look at the pattern of who they are. Because identity matters. Doing comes from being, right? Let's look at the pattern of their life and try to apply it to who we are. My question would be, does the abundance that you enjoy make you more humbled or more demanding. When you, see the, when you see the evolving of these patterns of the Israelites, you've got to notice this, that one generation's extravagance becomes the next generation's expectation. God wants to give his people good things. He's a father. All good things come from above, from the father of lights, James. Right? God wants to give his children good things because he loves us and because he's good. But blessings can become entitlements. I heard another pastor talking about how he wanted to give good things to his children. He said, children, I love you and I want to express my goodwill towards you. Let us go gather and obtain some ice cream. They get to the ice cream parlor and what happens? They fall down rejoicing and praising the great mercies that have been bestowed upon them in ice cream, right? No, they begin to complain about the choices. They get to begin to complain about how many scoops they can have, how many toppings they can have, right? And I'm sitting there thinking, there's this place about a mile from our house called TCBY, and I always want an additional scoop or more toppings. Um, I'm Israel. Blessings became entitlements. But God endures our petty little temper tantrums of entitlement and greed. He's still good to us. He still loves us. He's still raining down blessings that we don't even register on top of us. And he's still good to us. It's like cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Ice cream is around us. And we're complaining about how much there is. I mean, God has blessed us, right? Has he not been faithful to us? I mean, think about medical problems. People with asthma today would die. Not even 100 years ago. My child comes out of the womb, 
And we've got blue lights that we can put her under that heal her. It's like a light bright that does medical stuff. <laughs> God's good. You think about the spiritual blessings that God's given us. Can you imagine the blessing of being someone who can read and speak English with the massive amounts of spiritual information that we can obtain. When we're at the Gospel Coalition Conference and we're trying to get people to give 10 bucks so that we can provide, free of cost, like five books translated in their language because those are the only ones that they can get. God has been good to us and we fail to obey. We're the same as Israel. He's just... The Levites, Nehemiah, Ezra, they're saying, stay faithful. Stay with the covenant. We need the warning. We need the preachers. Yet, when we inevitably do fail, he is still faithful. He keeps covenant. Why does he keep covenant? Because he's the one that initiated it. Abraham didn't walk between the animals. God did. God didn't. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. God initiated. God maintains. God carries through. God has provided the covenant. He keeps his covenant. And his agenda is to always do good to those that are his. So finally, reformers respond with repentance and faith. You've heard that every week now. I hope for those of you playing at home, you can fill in those blanks before you even sit down in your seat. Reformers respond with repentance and faith. This is the story of God's faithful love. It will continue to play on and on. What's the application for today? There's a reason we went verse by verse. (laughs) This is the story of us. I don't have to apply it. I can put my name in there. Verse 38 leads us on to commitment to change and the covenant renewal. I'm I'm not even going to do much on this. It really ties in with next week. But just to set us up. Verse 38, because of all this, what a summary statement. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Their commitment is fueled by God's commitment. Because he keeps covenant, we can keep covenant or try. You see, they've rehearsed God's goodness, their sin, God's mercy, and now they're prepared to make a covenant to basically keep the covenant. They they can't make the covenant. God did that. So now they're making a covenant to try to keep the covenant. Spoiler alert, they fail in this same book. Their pattern will continue but it's it's not based on our faithfulness it's not based on your resolve it's not based on rededications it's not based on try hard it's not based on getting baptized again it's not based on reading so many books it's not based on any of that this is a unilateral covenant he's faithful he's the one who locked the line and this is headed towards a beautiful climax we, we think about communion that we celebrate When we partake of the elements, we are celebrating the covenant and its climax. God's faithfulness was shown to us in the incarnation 
and then the crucifixion. That's the climax. Everything else is a beautiful resolution into glory as we enter into glorification. He became a curse for us. Now we understand that Jesus died on the cross for us and the density and the weight of that massive block of accumulated transgression, that, that, back to the beginning of the sermon, the overwhelming transgression, that pile of laundry that grows higher and higher and higher and higher of which you must give an account for all of it. And each single item is worth eternal punishment. When that looms over top of you and you understand then the cross and only God's mercy is the only thing that's keeping it from crushing you, that all the wrath and the propitiation rested on the shoulders of Jesus, then maybe we can understand what confession and repentance looks like. Because he bore it all for us. As someone that came up to me after we played Depth of Mercy before the song that we opened with today and said, I don't really like that song. Negative. It's not really a happy song. We should be happy at church. I, th I think you need to read the lyrics again. And it, first of all, that song's not going anywhere. It's one of my favorites. Well, it's too much fun to play. Not that that necessarily plays in, but it's good. <laughs> Listen to this. Depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? For me, the chief of sinners, will he spare? I've long withstood his grace 400 years. <laughs> Many years. I've withstood his grace. I've provoked him to his face. I wouldn't hearken. I wouldn't listen to his calls. Not only that, I grieved him by a thousand, thousand falls. I am my master I've denied. I afresh have crucified and profaned his hollowed name. I've put him to an open shame. You get to the final course of that song. It says, my God, incline my heart now to repent. He, he, he's the one that brings us to repentance. Your kindness, Lord, leads me to repentance. Incline my heart to repent. Oh, Lord, for all of my sins, let me lament them. Let me feel the weight. Today, for my foul revolt, understand your condition. Let me deplore it. Let me weep. Let me believe. And let me sin no more. He concludes with, There for me the Savior stands. He shows his wounds and he spreads his hands. God is love. I know it. I feel it. Jesus weeps and loves me still. Jesus bleeds and loves me still. Jesus dies and loves me still. As we sing our next songs, I want you to stand when you're ready, okay? It's okay if you want to sit in your chair and just let the words wash over you. Stand when you're ready. We'll be continuing on in worship. But let's pray together. Almighty God, that I can call Father, as you see us here in our weakness of flesh, surrounded, enslaved to, and overwhelmed with earthly cares and desires, 
so much so that we can hardly raise up our hearts and our minds to you. Grant us, having been awakened by your preached word and your daily prophets, that we might at long last feel our evil and own it. That we may not only learn by the discipline that you inflict on us, but also of our own accord, that we might read your words and reflect on our lives, that we would examine our hearts and then come into your presence, having been our own judges, that we may anticipate having known what displeases you and obtain mercy that you've promised. For you're ready to forgive us. You've promised to all who, turning only to you, they will avoid your wrath and the propitiation of your Son. And now they will hope in your holy, almighty, and gracious favor. Through the name, through the work, and through the righteousness of one man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.